0: you are listening to the center for urban research teaching and outreach spiritual conversations podcast in each episode campus and community experts will highlight collaborations that contribute to the advancement of the human community Marquette university is located in milwaukee wisconsin the traditional lands of potawatomi ho-chung and menominee peoples along the southwest shores of michigami North America's largest system of freshwater lakes, where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinick rivers meet, and, and the people of Wisconsin, Sovereign, Anishi, Nabe, Menominee, Anita, and Mahican nations remain present.
1: Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us in today's Kirtle conversation. Uh, my name is Michael Vasquez. And I'm a graduate student at Marquette University, currently studying educational policy and foundations. In addition, I serve as a research assistant for the BLESS Hub, which is called Black and Latino Latina Ecosystem and Support Transition Hub. This initiative is housed under the Office of Curdle at Marquette University. And this initiative looks to map and engage with the different opportunities that are available for Black and Brown people in Milwaukee. And through the BLESS Hub, We began to do some work on dual enrollment or also known as concurrent enrollment during the 2022 spring semester and so today we specifically we want to talk about dual enrollment we will define what dual enrollment is the data behind it and the equity gaps that are present as well and i'm joined by several guests who have done research on dual enrollment and or have done much work with dual enrollment within the state or university level as well and so I'll introduce you all for this conversation. If I'm missing anything, please let me know, right? And please share with everybody else what else you do uh, within your respective roles, too. So first, I'd like to introduce uh, Vicky Bod. He's an Outreach Program Manager for the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Dr. Gabriel Veles and I have had great conversations with her when it comes to understanding the data on due enrollment and equity in the greater Milwaukee area. So. Vicki, we are very happy that you can join us and and very, very thankful that you're able to join this conversation. So, so thank you. Also, I'd like to introduce to Karen Smith. And so, Karen is a dual enrollment education consultant who works for the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction. In the past, she's been very generous with her time as she has shared the work that has been done regarding dual enrollment. So, thank you, Karen, uh, for being here today as well.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: And lastly, I would like to introduce Dr. Jason Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy at the University of Utah. He, along with several of his colleagues, published uh, their research called Research Priorities for Advancing Equitable Do Enrollment Policy and Practice. And so within that research, they become aware of the benefits, positive impacts that come along for students who take due enrollment courses. But then it was also really important to note right there that within their research, they emphasize that if these due enrollment uh, programs are implemented intentionally and equitably, the educational and career pathways will be significant for the students. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Taylor, for being here today. If there's anything else that you would want to add right there, please let us know as well.
3: <laughs> Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: First, what we wanna start off is by really uh, defining what do enrollment is all about. And then we're going to go off into like, you know, three little um, like sections, right? Based off of the questions that we have focusing on data, uh, looking at the equity within due enrollment, um, but then also taking action right there. And so, first, let's just talk about um, what do enrollment is. And so, as we may know, as some of us may know, is that do enrollment allows high school students uh, to take college classes. While they're still enrolled in high school. And so these class classes uh, count for both high school and college credit high school students who complete due enrollment uh, classes. They generally take fewer classes in college. And save money on the total college costs, and these are just few of the many benefits that may come along with, um, you know, taking due enrollment courses. And I know we can. Go more into depth as to some other positive impacts and benefits that may be attributed to it as well. But it is important to recognize that not all students um, are eligible to take dual enrollment uh, classes in high school requirements can vary by state as well. And really, even though many uh, the students are receiving credit and, and possibly right finishing college much more earlier uh, in comparison to their peers. It is important to, to recognize that there are equity gaps within uh, the dual enrollment programs. And so, for example, we look at our Black, Latino, and other multiracial students, they're still taking uh, dual enrollment courses at about half the rate of their white peers. And so that is important to to highlight right there. So that's just a little bit of what dual enrollment is, right? What it entails. And I know we can go more into this conversation as well. So I think, first of all, I want to start off with um, asking uh, Karen uh, a question. So you know, based off of your work and what you have done, how are most uh, dual enrollment data being gathered?
2: Yeah, great question to start with. So, in the in, in Wisconsin, public school districts report their dual enrollment participation data to our agency, the Department of Public Instruction, through their student information system. Now, as you know, and I'm sure our other guests know, there are lots of different types of dual enrollment. There are lots of different names for dual enrollment. So when they're reporting the data to DPI, we use two different ways to categorize dual enrollment. So we look at where that dual enrollment course takes place and then who's granting the credit. So I'll give you a few examples. They might report that a student participated in dual enrollment that was a high school course with with the Wisconsin Technical College System. So what that means is they took a course at their high school either by an instructor um, or by a high school teacher that has the right accreditation and certification to teach dual enrollment and they passed the course and they earned credit from the Wisconsin Technical College System. Another example would be a college course with the Wisconsin private school, you know, so if a student took a course at Marquette University through the early college credit program where that course took, takes place at your university, then that's that's that college course with um, the private college. So so that's how we really kind of divvy up and, and deal with the issue of having so many different types and names for dual enrollment. The other thing I'll, I'll mention, that's really exciting is just recently we started adding dual enrollment participation onto school report cards. So if a school district looks at their report card, they're going to see a metric um, how many students are participating in dual enrollment. And that's across all those different types that I just mentioned. And so we're looking at students from grades nine through 12 Um, that passed a course. So we don't include um, any courses that students failed or there was an incomplete or they audited it or it was ungraded. They have to have passed the class. And the other thing to note about those school district or school report card data is we're just looking at the number of students that participated in dual enrollment. We're not necessarily looking at the number of courses they took. So when you see that metric on a school report card, you know and you have one student that took one dual enrollment course that year and you have another student that took five dual enrollment courses that year they're still only counting once each so hopefully that gives you a, a little more understanding about how we collect and and look at and share data around dual enrollment
1: yes no that that is great no and we really appreciate that right kind of puts everything to perspective right there how that information is being uh, gathered, right? And, and right, that's really interesting as well, how that's also popping up on, on the school report cards too. No, thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate that. And the next the set of questions that, that we have right here is more of kind of based off like the, the research. And so I have this question directed towards Jason and then uh, Vicky, you're more than welcome to to join in this conversation as well. What what are you finding in the do enrollment data that you're currently analyzing, you know, based off of the work that you do and, and all that.
3: You mentioned, Michael, that we partnered with some colleagues to publish a, a paper recently, and the purpose of that of that white paper was to sort of it was twofold. One, it was to take stock of the existing evidence and literature on dual enrollment and and synthesize it, and two to To map out a research agenda for advancing equitable dual enrollment. And so that first you know the first purpose of that paper, and you know we 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 try to it's a really long paper, and we try to sort of synthesize some primary takeaways based on our assessment of the existing evidence, which, there's a there's a growing base of evidence and, and research uh, on dual enrollment. And as I think, you know, joining you all in Wisconsin, I think it's important to note that there's 50 different flavors of dual enrollment around the country because there's each state has their own sort of policy context and and local context that actually matters quite a bit in terms of in terms of of, of research and informing what we know. So, a couple of key takeaways that that maybe I'd share that are maybe germane to this conversation. One is you know we know dual enrollment is growing and it's growing some places at at faster rates than others. But this um, sort of boundary between high school and college is being blurred. Um, more students are taking college credit. In fact. About a tenth of all high school students, you know, are are enrolled in 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 college. So that is really important, and I'm really glad that you all are focusing on this issue because it I don't I don't see that changing um, anytime soon. Two, uh, you sort of alluded to this, but uh, you know, we see very consistently over the past decade, couple decades that access to dual enrollment is inequitable. We see students of color, low-income students, first-generation students, um, increasingly male students, students with disabilities, have lower lower participation rates than their counterparts. And so, so we just sort of see that just by looking at, you know, sort of raw participation numbers, students are not accessing them and participating in dual enrollment at, at equal rates why that matters is because the third you know sort of takeaway from pretty clear evidence again across multiple contexts national data many state level studies show that you know participating in dual enrollment is an effective strategy for helping students get through high school and transition into college and even careers in some in some cases so so it's an evidence-based strategy. It helps. Um, it helps many schools and states are focused on college readiness and college attainment. Um, it's an effective strategy to help students transition into college. There's a lot more in that paper. I'd be happy to elaborate on any any of it, but I think those are a few things that are, I think, maybe uh, you know, really important to note for um, for this for this conversation.
1: Yes, thank you, Jason. Yeah, I think those are really good points, right? there, right, as you stated, right, within your research, but then, right, it's something that we continue to see very prevalent within a lot of other pieces of research of what they're saying regarding, um, you know, due enrollment, and specifically, right, that's something that that we want to highlight in today's conversation about our students of color who don't have that same access uh, to these due enrollment courses. Uh, Vicki, is there anything that, that you would like to, to share upon uh, regarding that question?
4: No, I I mean I've read Jason's work. Thank you, Jason. And I don't do research myself per se. So uh, you know, I I'm reading what others are are studying and learning about dual enrollment. So very grateful for it. But as Jason points out, there's a lot yet to know.
2: Uh, and I'll I'll just add in that as we look at our data in Wisconsin, it. It echoes exactly what Jason was saying. So uh, as we look at the 2021 school year, which is the most recent year we've been able to analyze our data, um, 23% of students in Wisconsin participated in a dual enrollment course. The interesting thing is then when you when you start to dissect that 23%, 85% of the 23% participated in a course that happened at their high school. Whereas only 15% out of that 23% participated at a course that happened at a college or university campus. And then as we look at some of the, as as we disaggregate the, the data and look at some of the equity gaps, the biggest gaps we're seeing are students with disabilities, students from economically disadvantaged families, and Black
1: students. Thank you, Karen, for sharing those points right there. That was going to be one of my questions right there. Exactly. You know, how is that data, right, being disaggregated right there, right? Like, how do we get, like, a better picture of, okay, like, who are those who are essentially right at a disadvantage right there? So, yes, no, thank you for sharing that. And, and so I think the the next question uh, that I have right here is uh, specifically more about, you um, what, what are some of the best practices when, when it relates to dual enrollment uh, based off of the work that, that you are doing?
4: Well, I can, I can start, I think. I'll start with what what we've been thinking about. You know, as Karen said, the majority of dual enrollment credits earned are in the high school. Of course, it's important to, you know, remember that dual enrollment was not sort of intentionally developed. You know, and it was so it wasn't intentionally developed to be equitable. So it's just sort of, you know, this evolution that's happening across the country. And there isn't a overarching strategy, you know, through the Department of Ed going on here. I think we know that it's more accessible and equitable if it can happen in the high school but that is contingent upon having qualified teachers in the high school who qualify to teach a college course and can get approved. Now, that that's, that's a huge barrier for many high schools and high school students, and it can cause some sort of unforeseen negative consequences where maybe high schools are offering a college course only because they have one teacher who has a master's degree in whatever you know is that the best course is that does that make sense for those high school students to be taking that course maybe maybe not we don't know so there's a lot of not strategic thinking and decision making about dual enrollment one thing that i would say is a best practice that we're seeing at milwaukee public schools is that they have reserved some of their esser funding to accelerate dual enrollment, and they are now, over the next two years, paying graduate tuition for English, math, and world language teachers to earn either a master's degree, if they don't have one, or at least 18 graduate credits in those disciplines. So that that's a that's a practice that was sort of, you know, a a dream of ours, you know, three to five years ago is how are we going to get more qualified high school teachers and do that in a really intentional way? And, you know, one one good thing that came out of the pandemic is that funding and uh, we you know, we work together and I'm really glad they decided to invest that money in teachers in high schools that will affect students positively.
1: Thank you, Vicky. Yes, I, I think that's, you know, something that we've seen a lot, right, that a lot of our, our teachers, right, do not have, like, that that certification right there. And so for that money to be invested right there to help them out so they can obtain that certification is like super important as they continue to uh, teach the, these courses for these uh, respective students. A- any other comments?
2: And just piggyback off of what Vicki was talking about, really looking at the barrier of not having qualified high school teachers to teach those dual enrollment courses in the high school, some of the best practices we're starting to see, and and I think a lot of it is thanks to COVID. So how many times do people say thanks to COVID? But thanks to COVID, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. We're starting to see a lot of really great collaborative strategies where uh, multiple school districts are really working together and finding ways to use technology or, or other ways to collaborate to have you know one teacher teach a course that maybe students from multiple school districts can attend and participate in we even have in southwest wisconsin there is a whole county that they created a construction academy and so all the school districts in that county have access to dual enrollment classes in construction through this one academy approach so i think we're starting to see some really innovative things start to to bubble up that we can look at is hopefully we start to take all the bits and pieces and start to to formulate a more coherent strategy.
3: I think uh, I'll just add add to what's been said here. I mean, I think there's there's examples of sort of, I think, sort of the capacity questions, which I think Vicki and Karen just sort of hit on. And I think there's other sort of best practice, particularly when we think of equity around sort of some, some of the... Um, Policy and practices that I think historically, going back to the equity question, that sort of historically have been barriers for equity. One of them is around eligibility, and I think we're seeing lots of states and 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 partnerships experiment and explore how to remove eligibility barriers for 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 dual enrollment. Maybe those of you in Wisconsin can talk a little bit about what, you know, the eligibility context is in Wisconsin, because, again, it varies by by state. And then even at the state level, I think in some places we see a lot of local variation, right, where access to a course might really depend on a, a counselor recommendation or a school, someone advocating for a student to enroll. Some of those, some practices, you know, just historically have, you know, just excluded students. So I think um, you know, where we're we're seeing some movement at the policy level across across the country is really thinking about removing eligibility barriers and coupling that with intentional support structures for 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 students where where to ensure students are are successful in dual enrollment courses once they enroll.
1: Definitely no thank you so much and right you were able to highlight right there Jason and, and everyone else. So, um, really, you know, a lot of the, the barriers that are at play, um, right, for a lot of uh, the students, um, right, within due the enrollment, then also best practices that, that can be implemented, that can be shifted to really better um, serve the students, right, who, who are within uh, the, this uh, these programs right here. And so that kind of like shifts a little bit into our next couple questions. I know it was probably highlighted earlier in, in the conversation right here, But just based off uh, the research that maybe i have been doing, Jason, the work that you've been doing, Karen, and and Becky, have you been able to see that uh, more students of color have been taking uh, dual enrollment courses? Have the numbers uh, increased in in recent years?
2: I'll I'll jump in first, and then maybe we can talk about the, the national and then the local perspective. I unfortunately not not necessarily. So as we look at the the three years, the three most recent years of, of data across the state, participation has increased across many race and ethnicity groups, but with the exception of American Indian and Black students. So we are not necessarily seeing Black students participate at any, or, or close that equity gap. And then, in addition, we we see some pervasive equity gaps around those economically disadvantaged students, English language learners, and students with disabilities.
3: So, I think I mean nationally, this the we, you were asking earlier about how data are collected, and we really only have we don't have the best data sources nationally for dual enrollment. That's going to change in the next couple of years. With I think the probably the best sort of census data that we'll get which will be from ipads in a specific a specific data point for dual enrollment right now we have to use age as a proxy for um for dual enrollment in ipads there's the civil rights data um started collecting data on on dual enrollment recently those data are don't necessarily match ipads numbers so we have some big gaps so when you ask like you know what what are the trends um, nationally? It's actually quite difficult to estimate that over time. I think we, we, we see much better, we get better data when we look at state level data, who, and uh, many states that have tracked participation over time. We do, I think we have seen some progress um, when we look at that across many states. We've seen some progress in terms of the proportion or the number of students of color that are taking. Dual enrollment, unfortunately, it, does, it that gap still exists, right? So they're still take, enrolling at dis, disproportionate levels. I think there's, I think you know, there's some some promising trends, but it sounds like you know, and maybe this is the case in Wisconsin too, which, you know, I've not I've not looked at your data like Karen has, but it, I, I think we have just still see these really huge gaps in participation for students of color. They that you know are are not closing um they're they're not closing
1: uh thank you so much yeah and i think um, something that i even found a bit of a challenge myself even doing uh, my own research when it comes to enrollment is how challenging it could be to try to obtain uh, certain information right regarding data right we're able to see it at the state level but then you know when you want to make it locally and it, go to certain districts it, it does get a, a bit of a challenge and so you kind of you're not able to see the full picture right there, right? To to see what's been going on uh, for so many years uh, with respective um, students. So thank you so much. Yes, I think um, so. We're able to highlight right a little bit of that data that's being collected, and those equity gaps, uh, best practices, and, and whatnot. I think what I really want to try to move into right now is really the, the action piece and just being mindful of the time right here as well. And so... The, the next questions that I have right here, how can, and we we touched upon it just a little bit right here, but if you like to expand a little bit more, but how can we reduce uh, barriers for participation to enrollment courses for uh, low-income students and students of color?
4: It's a good question, Mike. That's the question we're all working on here. I, I think we need, you know, a multiple, multi-pronged approach. I think, we need to, you know, work as a, as you know, a state to to look at how is our state how is our state funding and supporting this, not just sort of the tuition piece, but also the support piece. So, you know, we we have a program with uh, MPS and MATC and UWM that is uh, has about one hundred seniors in college classes their senior year instead of attending high school, and that program probably requires about four FTEs between those four institutions. So it's not just the tuition, you know, cost, which is actually very minimal, but it's the amount of people that it takes to recruit, support, inform, work with instructors. So it, you know, I think it's gonna it it takes investment and it, we got to look at our different methods in where where students can earn credit and think about how if our if our priority is equitable dual enrollment, we're gonna to have to think about what are the, the smartest investments we can make in those different modes to make that happen.
2: Yeah, funding for sure is is definitely a, a priority and an issue and something that we have to to work on. I'm excited to see, you know, some I would say forward movement, but, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of interest in us, right? There was a legislative study that was done in Wisconsin about two years ago, I think it was, where we have got some really robust input from not only the Department of Public Instruction, but the UW system, the technical college system, the private colleges, individual high schools, individual co- um, colleges. So we're starting to get a pretty good sense of what some of the issues are now it's you know what's what's the the solution i, I can share that at the at DPI. this is something we take really really seriously um, this is an important issue for dr underly our state superintendent and our leadership we are beginning to convene regular meetings around dual enrollment to look at both short-term and long-term solutions. We are meeting with the UW system you know, to, to look at how we can collaborate with them. We'll be talking with uh, the private colleges as well and the technical colleges. So it's, it's all hands on deck. But I'll tell you the thing that we can do now, right, because all those things, it's going to take time, right, to, to implement policy change, to, to look at increasing funding and doing it in a way that will really address the equity gaps that we have. In the meantime, we are set up to really make sure that dual enrollment is deeply connected to career readiness because we have, um, we have a statute already in place that requires every school district to have an academic and career planning process for their students starting in sixth grade through 12th grade. And so going beyond just, we've got these dual enrollment courses that we offer, we're putting them in our course catalog. to so really thinking about how do we weave this in to the academic and career planning process. So students are exploring their interests, they're, you know, looking at their skills, they're exploring careers, they're understanding the education required for those, those careers, and then thinking about dual enrollment in the context of all that, because then that gives it more meaning. And it's going to help students maybe see a connection and be encouraged to participate in dual enrollment. Not to mention that ACP comes with that adult advisor, that caring adult, And sometimes it's just that person saying, you know what, this would be really good for you. You should try this. You could do this and making sure they get that support. And that's good for all students, but especially when we're talking about students from low-income families, our Black and Brown students, our students with disabilities, those things are especially critical. So that's my my hope right now that we can start that work and then work on those long-term solutions as well.
3: Well that's that's exciting to hear I mean as someone who sort of thinks about this at the national level and has worked with several states I feel like some of the ingredients are were you know to success I think were just described by Vicky and Karen so you that that's really fabulous I think you know having having you know you're thinking about data you've got leadership support you're you know thinking about funding and structures those are all, I think, important. I'll add a couple other things. One, I think, is that incentives are really important. How can you incentivize sort of local partnerships? Uh, what's what's the incentive for them to prioritize dual enrollment? And I think you know some of the things I already mentioned around funding. You know, you know, depending on how 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 policy is structured, that's something to think creatively about. But really, you know, I've seen you know states or or, or places that have really you know created specific goals and strategies for equity. And I think that you got to get to that level. Um, and I, it sounds like some of that work might be in motion, which is which is really exciting. So I know we're running low on time, but I think, yeah, it looks like, you know, you all have a lot of the ingredients or you're, you're developing the right ingredients for, for this equation.
1: Well, thank you so much, everyone. I appreciate all the insights that you all had to share. A lot of great information right here as we continue to gain a better understanding what do enrollment entails and how we can implement best practices for all our students and really how to create a more equitable do enrollment program uh, within all areas. And so uh, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for each and every one of you for joining us here today. Thank you to those who are listening from home. I hope you all really enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And, and thank you for, for joining in one of our curdle conversations. Have a good one.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Quarto Conversations. You can learn more about this podcast and the work being done with our partners by visiting the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at urbancenter at marquet.edu. Music for this episode is by Ronald E. Johnson, whose music can be found at Choco Geek Aisong. Uh,